Hello and welcome to Ethical Fields Conversations on Community Wealth Building. Today we're lucky to be joined with Matt Farlett. G'day Matt, how are you? Yeah, good. Well, what are yourself? Yeah, very good. Matt, um, for those that don't know you, maybe you could just introduce uh, yourself and the organisation that you're working with and, um, you know, bring us up to Matt as he's standing or sitting in front of us today. <laughs> Thank you. Matt Farlett, uh, I'm the CEO and co-founder of uh, ACRE, which stands for the Australian Centre for Rural Entrepreneurship. I wear another hat and that's as the um, CEO of the Social Enterprise Academy for Australia. Um, these, these organisations are both social enterprises. Um, we, we, work in the, uh, we work with communities, we work uh, around renewing communities from within, um, we champion entrepreneurship, uh, social and local entrepreneurship, and um, we've been doing it uh, headquartered out of Beechworth, the, the small town where my family has grown up uh, and I originally resided from the area. Um, and so our real passion is that um, rural communities can, um, can be renewed with, from within. I've, I've got a background uh, in outdoor education. I've been working for many, many years uh, with Youth at Risk um, in enterprising ways. So, so those young people that were never going to make it from an academic point of view, but um, could use their entrepreneurial skills and talents to uh, find a different pathway, shall we say. Um, and so I'm a believer in, in the roughie. I'm a believer in the outlier. And, um, uh, and I never imagined that social entrepreneurship would ever become a thing. Um, but apparently people are happy to listen to social entrepreneurs now. And um, so I'll just bang on wherever I can. Well, thank you. I, I wanted to talk to you about the uniqueness of Beechworth. I mean, apart from the historic thing, uh, contemporarily, you guys have, you know, community-owned uh, enterprises, including a big tourism enterprise. You've attracted one of the leading lights of cooperators. So Robin Donnelly, who literally wrote the cooperative national law, is now resident at Beechworth. What is it about your community, your home community, that makes it so special for you? Well, I, I think, I think uh, we've got to take our hat off to a township down the road, dare I say. Um, which is Yakandanda. And Yakandanda is a tiny little town of a 1,000 people that has a really, really strong heritage from some 20 years ago of um, deciding to rebuild the uh, petrol station when they looked like they were going to lose their only fuel supply to the town. And that little community didn't go begging the government. They actually decided to invest in themselves and they created a great little uh, social enterprise business that now has spawned about 12 other businesses and has created this fertile landscape for the next generation to return. So I call them the children of the revolution um, in that there's all of this uh, great stuff happening in places like Yakandanda, places like Beechworth, where people are feeling like they're a hotbed of welcoming ideas. It doesn't, doesn't mean there's not tension, doesn't mean there's not um, dramas within that, but it is about, you know, um, being surrounded by people who believe that there's a better path. And I guess we'll talk about the better path and, and what, you know, the world could look like. But before we do that, maybe you can tell us a bit about the history of social enterprise and how it differs from, 
the business as usual for those that aren't familiar? Yeah, well, very simply, a social enterprise is a, is a business that's been set up directly and deliberately to solve a social or environmental issue. And so what's recognised in the Australian context is that at least 50% of your profits are being directed to your mission. Um, and so it's very, very clearly you wouldn't go into this sort of business model if you weren't fairly fair income about the change you were, you were trying to create. And I suppose the, the, the country that best exemplifies where this has had serious traction from not only practitioners in communities, but government and industry uh, and the education sector is Scotland. Um, and and where, where a lot of the hotbed of activity started was in, you know, the highlands and islands where their traditional industries were uh, caved in on them, you know, about 20 years ago. And so there's, there's just so many numerous examples of where communities have taken matters in their own hands. But in the case of Scotland, you know, there, there's now, you know, lots of, um, you know, government-related strategies and policies, and it's sort of been built into the mainstream of their, their economic fabric. And so they're a great place to point to, but they've also got longevity. Um, and so it's learning from those people who've already done the hard yards that I think is particularly important in not reinventing the wheel. And what are the sorts of failures that they've stepped into and, and, and are addressing you know, are they around fuel like we're seeing in Yakandanda or are they around uh, industry? Yeah. Look, it, it, you know, the, the common denominator is, is the decline or, or collapse of the traditional industry that, um, that served their economic purpose, you know. So, so the, very, the very nature of jobs in these rural and regional communities. And so what they've done is they've looked at how internally they can start investing in themselves, often using the remnant know-how uh, of those traditional industries, but, but reinventing themselves in a much uh, more contemporary way. So, you know, a great example that comes to mind is that the, um, the Harris Distillery that, that still uses fishing know-how, but is out there catching kelp to go into their funky gins, you know, and selling it all over the world. They still know how to fish, right? but they've got a new marketplace for, for those products and, and they're just the first wave while, they're, while their distilling happens. And instead of, um, you know, bringing in distillers from all over the world, they brought in the best distiller educator and, and, um, and trained all the crofters and, and the fishers and the local people how to, how to, how to run a world-class, world um, highly scaled and productive, um, you know, uh, distillery in the future. So it's, it's, using, it's using knowledge and know-how and networks in a different way for a new marketplace. I think that so, uh, you know, points to the resilience of rural communities. You reorganise the assets you have to, to make it work. Um, yeah, there plenty of great agricultural examples. Let's talk a bit about the Centre for uh, uh, Regional Entrepreneurship. Uh, is that it? Regional Entrepreneurship? Yeah, so ICA, the Australian Centre for Rural Entrepreneurship. Yeah. So I know that you work a lot with uh, stacking capital in those scenarios. So a bit from the community, a bit from impact, a bit from likes of FRRR. Talk to me about how, you know, how that looks day to day when you're working with a social enterprise or a rural entrepreneur, 
How do you work out what are the instruments and what are the tools that they're made to use? Well, rural people have been pretty much cut out of um, the ability to build and scale uh, serious businesses to help themselves. And the reason for that is that capital exists around um, you know, the major cities and the population centres. And, you know, that was our experience when we're trying to buy an old jail in the middle of our little town that happens to be, you know, culturally uh, and historically significant for its role in the sort of whole Ned Kelly saga. But still, still that's not a draw card when, you know, your impact investors are still wanting your, your, your maximum commercial return that they know they can get in Melbourne and Sydney and still look good. So, you know, if, if they all left, left the building, so to speak, the only people who are going to invest in you are your locals. And so our play was all about saying, hey, you people who have your self-managed super fund, how many of those, how many of those um, you know, investments are actually happening in your town? Now, why don't you invest where you live? And in doing so, we can actually leverage some of the risk and make it more palatable for other investment and other capital to come in. So that's what we did. We raised... 1.7 million out of uh, 19 local families. Everyone thought uh, that's a crazy idea because you can't manage uh, 19 family investors. <laughs> um, but that was all about proving a point that um, if the community invests in itself, what, why can't you come and share the risks with us? And that's what happened with us. That's, that's the blueprint we took from Yak and Danda. Um, and so this is about proof points um, and those kind of anchor projects that make it make these sorts of approaches available and, and unremarkable to, to other communities in the future. So that's what we're trying to do. Well, I think it's amazing what you're doing and we're going to talk more about it, particularly when it gets to that messy stage of enterprise. But before we do, let's look forward 10 years and um, look at business as usual. Where do you think that takes us? Uh, business as usual um, is, in my mind, a devastating concept uh, because it, all it does is uh, increase the inequity that exists in our society. Um, already, if you're a young person growing up in rural Australia, you're twice as likely to commit suicide. You know, you're, you're likely to be uh, in a town that's got unemployment between 30 and 50%. Uh, if you're a young Aboriginal person, you're 21 times more likely to be incarcerated. Um, you have disproportionate uh, impacts from climate change and there's no entry-level jobs for you, plus whatever the government debt that we're going to inherit will be all yours. Um, so if I'm a young person, I, I don't feel very proud of, of what, what we, our kids are going to inherit. To add, to add salt to the wound, we're not supporting the capability of people uh, you know, the, the people who exist who are really smart and, uh, you know, show huge amounts of ingenuity on a daily basis, we, we don't invest in them at all. We still look to what I call, uh, you know, um, that sort of big business approach to economic recovery, which um, has been proven in many, many other countries to only create what they call a leaky bucket economy, where, where big money comes in for big industry, uh, it's owned offshore or elsewhere, uh, it's not owned by, by those local communities and, and all of the, yeah, the money flows through, of course, but the vast majority of, of effort and, and rewards go back out again. And, um, you know, if I could give you an example of where that's kind of happening right now, 
Uh, if we look at the Moree community in um, you know, northwest New South Wales, you've got a situation where from an industrial uh, agricultural point of view and corporate agriculture, it is a hotbed of activity and, and, um, you know, and potential in the next 30 years, like huge. Um, yet two years ago, the local council workers um, picked up 50,000 methamphetamine needles uh, in a community of 9,000. Now, if that doesn't talk to a despairing local community in, 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 a, in an economic environment that's supposedly wonderful, then I don't know what does. That's my hometown that you're talking of uh, as well. And I was hadn't been back for 16 years and we were there in um, September 2020. And you're right, it's a two-speed economy uh, and it's very illustrative of, of what's going on um, across Australia. I mean, you could get pretty um, disheartened when you follow business as usual to its logical conclusion, the inequity, the, the social and environmental problems. I'm going to ask us not to dwell there too long. I'm instead going to imagine, ask you to imagine you have a a magic wand and in 10 years time, I don't know, maybe we've given you uh, the powers of being a supreme uh, orator or a supreme commander, but you've gathered the forces that you've needed and you've changed the world. What could the world look like in your view? This is truly hypothetical, isn't it? <laughs> oh, I mean, if you're dead certain about it, uh, you, you can tell us that too. <laughs> uh. Well, look, I, I think I think there's something um, there, there's something that we can take notice of um, that that actually was a piece of work that happened after the GFC, and it was and it was piece of work done by the OECD in in looking oh sorry the World Economic Forum and looking at OECD countries and you know, what 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 is the future of their economies and that was post the global financial crisis and so. In 2009, they, they put out this um, a report called The Next Wave of Entrepreneurs, and it was really focused on the next generation, but it talks about um, entrepreneurship and education being uh, the two most extraordinary opportunities that we need to interconnect and leverage. And if we were to do that, we fuel innovation, we fuel employment generation and economic growth. And it's only in that environment where entrepreneurship can prosper and communities can get behind new ideas that the world's issues won't go unaddressed. Now, that's the opening line or the opening paragraph by Klaus Schwab. And off the back of that, around about 17 countries have taken on a, new, uh, you know, a youth entrepreneurship strategy uh, nationally. And, and our country is not one of them. But I, I truly believe that within the next generation, a whole people, a whole human race that believes that um, profit shouldn't come at the expense of people and the planet. So I, I hold out absolutely no hope for, for my generation, but I hold out a huge amount of hope so, for the next generation. So I think it's really quite simple that if we can look at building um, those entrepreneurship capabilities uh, within a social context and an environmental context into every young person in the future and we start to look at 
uh, enterprise capabilities alongside numeracy and literacy as those core, core capabilities that young people take through their in, entire career, then I think that naturally what will, what will happen from that is we'll build local, diverse, inclusive um, and, and agile um, enterprising economies that respond to local and global needs. And to me, there's, um, you know, in all the work that we, we've been doing with those communities that have been on their knees and are now thriving again, there's only kind of 16 things that you need to interconnect uh, around people and resources and access to market and, and mentoring, all this kind of stuff that I'm very, very confident the next generation will embrace. And, and given the reins, um, you know, we'll really, in a very, very short amount of time, start to tackle some of these this entrenched disadvantage and inequity that we, um, you know, we, we experience today. Let me ask you uh, for some, uh, some examples of um, youth entrepreneurship uh, in regions that you're seeing that gives you kind of uh, seeds of hope. Yeah, for lack of a better word. Well, you know, I, I mentioned before the, um, the children of the revolution. Yep. And, and these, these are young people who are from our region and happen to be the children of the original people who decided to take matters in their own hands and create a, um, a service station for their town. But they weren't just, um, you know, re-engaging with petrol. <laughs> yeah, they, they were building out a, a, an anchor, as it might be called in the Northern Hemisphere, that then looked at, well, how do we have hardware in our town? How do we have a diesel mechanic again? How do we create an arts and cultural centre? How do we support the folk festival? How do we support Meals on Wheels in our sporting clubs? How do we do that within through the, through the engine room of, of enterprise? And, you know, what's come out of that, and, and I'm, I'm happy to read a couple here, is that not only did they, they do all of those things, but now they run a community newspaper. Um, there's Totally Renewable Yak and Danda. That's been founded by these young entrepreneurs. Um, there's, there's the Yak and Danda Station co-working and arts precinct. Um, the kinder, the primary, the sporting clubs all, all get the, the benefits of this business. But importantly, um, Totally Renewable Yak and Danda has now morphed into Indigo Power. Mm. And Indigo Power is a community renewable energy provider that just won the contract to put in a, a new energy uh, grid and power supply that's renewable for the township of Corium after the um, devastating bushfires. So these are the children of the revolution who are actually taking this know-how locally and now nationally and look, you know, look out probably globally. But what it's created is a real infection around other young creative people coming back to Yak and Danda. So, you know, Ben Gil Gilbert, who runs the agency of sculpture, he sells his sculpture, which are all kind of public, public kind of artworks and play equipment all blended into one. He's got 22 staff that, um, and, and commissions all over the world and, and three years of work in front of him. So this is the sort of thing that I'm talking about where, where energy and ideas feed off each other and collaboration naturally occurs in a way that my generation never embraced. It sounds to me like this collaboration hasn't been relying on uh, Facebook to fuel it. It's collaboration between people. Would you talk to that? Uh, is it, yeah, am I making an assumption there that, you know, the connection isn't about the technology platform, it's about the people platform? 
Yeah, and I think place is incredibly important. Um, you know, we, we all have a connection to our families. We all have a connection to the communities that we're a part of. And we, we have a deep connection to us being able to successfully live in these places and these places having opportunities for the next generation. So it's the strength of relationships that, that um, I think musters this deep trust and understanding and, um, and perseverance because this stuff is not easy. And, and in a small town, you know, uh, you're going to brush up. The change brushes up against, against uh, orthodoxy and orthodoxy often doesn't like change. And, and so you're in a community and someone who has publicly, you know, hates you or whatever you're standing right next to to get your loaf of bread in the morning. You know, it's not like Melbourne where you can escape this sort of stuff. So you need to, you need to um, manoeuvre and negotiate um, these kind of relationships on a very, very daily basis. But when you do find those kind of deep connections, they're the things that, that help you through the hard times to actually create genuine and lasting and authentic change and when when that's achieved others from other rural areas go oh my gosh if those folks can do it we should have a serious crack too so i think i think there's only two things that rural australians ever agree on one is opportunities for young people they don't know what it looks like or what they are but they agree on it and the second one is where you live Yep. And, and if you can use those as your tools of tools of kind of your theory of change, if you like, then you're kind of halfway home. Matt, this has been excellent so far, and I'm looking forward to diving into the messy middle with you. I'm going to ask, though, for our colleague, uh, Gareth, to come and share the conversation so far. We've been talking at a million miles an hour, <laughs> and so... I know that Gareth will have been typing and capturing as much of the conversation as possible. But uh, Gareth, if you could bring up your screen and talk through. Sure. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you get faster every week. I'm not, not true. You're just getting slower. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, right. So. Um, where did we start? So we started with um, a bit about yourself and what you've done with uh, the Australian Regional Entrepreneurship Group. And then I hope I've got the right ones, the Social, the Social Enterprise Academy. And particularly sort of centering on the idea of, of Beechworth. And I put in some pies because it was the only thing I could knew about Beechworth straight away, you know, I haven't been there. And of course, um, the, um, Jack and Ann, uh, I hope this is the right service stations. This is what the, the, the one that came up. Well done, right. Gareth. Um, and the inspiration from Scotland that we've got up there. So this, this idea, you know, which was, which is really nice. I think Scotland, um, we've been looking at a number of things around renewable energy and there, there is a hotbed of, like you say, of, of ideas. And it's great to see so it's a bunch of things sort of transferring that. And I love the way you phrase that. It's a hotbed for welcoming ideas, you know, um, which was, I think, a great, great phrase. Um, on the, the, the sort of the, the Dan side, um, there was this kind of, um, yeah, decline and collapse, which is exactly what the, the way we often phrase the downside, but specifically around this, um, this idea that big business is going to come in and save the day all the time. And actually, there's still this, this leakage back out because of the nature of 
where the business's head office, what their interests are. And so that means that there's actually a disconnect between the community itself and, and that in a way. And I think you, you, know, you pointed out a whole number of things that I couldn't quite get around um, you know, twice as likely to, uh, you know, suicide, you know, 21 times more likely to be incarcerated. Um, and the, you know, the, the, the meth needles, that, that real on the ground, you know, experience of that leakiness. Let's get to the upside because that was, that's, that's not so much fun. So there were lots and lots of great examples. And, and I think, you know, the, this idea of, um, uh, and we've, we've sort of heard similar things, but it was, it was you know, the, the two things that came out really strongly was, for me, was this idea of, okay, we can find some people who believe in this locally who will invest. And that is a signal to other investors to come in who would not otherwise come in. So if you can do that, then we can start to make movement. But the next thing is, once we've done that and we can point to someone who's done something and made it work, it's infectious. So this is the other kind of infection. So it's infection from Scotland with these ideas or infection of we've done this so from one small town to the next one, we can actually do these things and we can actually make it work. And you mentioned the children and the revolution. So we've got, you've got a bit of T-Rex in there. As well, as the as a kind of a cross generational children of revolution thing we've got going there. Well, I knew um, you might pick that up. That's good. <laughs> yeah. so, um, and so it's quite interesting. I think you know, coming back to, to to the way that you'd frame the kind of hopeful side of things of of you know um, you know this local needs you know innovation for local and global needs but actually we're talking in 2021 about an idea that was around in 2009 you know um this idea of you know entrepreneurship and education becoming a core capability and and taking you know and taking off and i think probably a, a difference that you've you didn't directly make but but this idea i think then it was probably thinking about just unicorns and i think now we're talking about you know a more nuanced version of that that includes things like social enterprises and so on. They're really focusing on some of these local problems for providing a genuine service and, and, and localizing jobs as well. Um, so that leaves us with, with plenty of room in here. This is the bit in here that you're going to be talking about next, which is the, the messy middle. So what happened when these, these different worldviews collide? But what did I miss? Because I know there was something about distilling and kelp that I did not get. And it may not have been kelp. Do you want me to explain? Please, <laughs> Matt. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, so so uh, one of the signature gins of um, the uh, Harris Distillery in the Outer Hebrides of Scotland, a very, very remote um, area of the planet, um, mm. it, has a, has a traditional fishing industry that, that has been pretty much you know, in, in collapse. And, and yet um, here's a community that's bound together to, to create a, a seriously world-class new distillery and, yeah. and gin, gin plant. And so instead of um, getting in the best distillers and the best gin makers in the world to do all of this, they've actually built it from the ground up to create new jobs for existing folk. And, and what's interesting, and, and so... Where the kelp comes in, instead of those fishers using their traditional fishing skills to go out for the, uh, you know, the big ocean trout, say, they're, they're, they're going for the kelp that is a key ingredient in this gin that is being sold all around the world. 
Um, so it's that idea of using your cultural knowledge and remnant know-how. And I, and I think that's the key to engaging with a local economy. It is um, building out the things that we already know how to do. Um, so that was the point there. The that's other cool. interesting thing about the Isle of uh, the Harris Distillery is that they raised um, 24 million pounds to get their big venture off the ground from uh, what they call Scots abroad. So these were the diaspora of Scottish people who'd been cleared off the Isle of Harris 300 years ago and their descendants who are now you know, uh, wealthy or not even wealthy, but just investors of, of that uh, Isle's uh, heritage in places like Nova Scotia, um, you know, US, uh, you know, Australia and New Zealand. So what, what, a, what a wonderful way to tap into a new mm. investor is the people who have heritage way back when um, to caring about our isle. And, and I just think it's a, it's a stroke of genius in, on so many levels. That's lovely. The, the bit I missed, because I thought that, but the, I thought you were talking about Beechworth, and I'm thinking unless they've moved it, I don't understand the kelp bit and how the, where the kelp's coming from. So I've inherited that, that from my sense. mother. You know, <laughs> I, can, I can run six discussions at the same time and they, they actually have no relationship with each other. That, that makes a lot more sense now. Great. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Gareth, um, I might get into the messy middle. You do that. I'm very keen, Matt, to explore, um, first of all, the education system that you think uh, needs to be present to create the humans that we need to have present. Um, so, you know, what's your take on education as it stands and what little tweaks do you think we can add to nudge it towards a, a better outcome as opposed to a dystopian outcome? Yeah, great, great question, Wardy. And it, it all comes back to um, what the trajectory many countries are already on. And, and that is that, um, you know, building enterprise capabilities uh, and, and treating them as seriously as you do numeracy and literacy. So you're introduced to these concepts, the mindset, skills and behaviours of entrepreneurship um, the very day you, you get to primary school. But the, the, these skills, these foundational skills are built on um, in, a, in a layered and more sophisticated way as you go through your primary and secondary uh, education. And, and Scotland's already landed this. So, so the Social Enterprise Academy runs social enterprise schools in Scotland. It's been running for 14 years. They call it the curriculum of excellence. Um, and they've just won the contract to be in every single school in Scotland. So this is, this is about saying that, um, you know, what, what some people might call the soft skills, uh, some people might call the enterprise capabilities, they are the human skills, as Simon Sinek would call them, um, that, are, that are needed to negotiate future work. And, and um, we just happen to have in our country uh, a real reluctance to kind of know how to really navigate that at a systems level. There's some really good work that's been happening with the Victorian Curriculum Assessment Authority. They've been leading the way around uh, how we embed critical and creative thinking as the foundations for entrepreneurial learning 
into the into the curriculum. Um, but they're they're a, they're an organisation that requires the the um, you know the government of the day to actually put it into the education system. And um, and and what that does is it, it brings up all sorts of other issues around well are our, are our teachers trained to actually do this? So I, I understand the complexity. I know this is happening, but um, you know what we really need to do is actually um, focus in on how we start building out enterprise capabilities in 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 school children. And you know we've we've uh, we've imported that Scottish model into northeast Victoria. We've been in um, you know forty school settings, uh, primary, secondary, and um, alternative education settings for for five years now. It's all been independently value uh, you know evaluated. Uh, and we've worked with the Victorian Curriculum Assessment Authority around those teacher resources and, and things like that. And you know what, what's amazing about this kind of learning is, is that if you're a non-academic learner, you've got, you've, got, you've got the ability to play. And, um, and this is real world. So young people are um, identifying, and so it's all student-led, they identify what they care about as, as a class, as a collective of, of students. And then instead of doing what we know, all know how to do, which is do a fundraiser, uh, we actually cre they create a business. Um, and as young people are building businesses, not to trade for the day or for an afternoon or, you know, it's, it's to actually continue to trade and build this into the culture and embed it within uh, the fabric of the school community, but the broader community as well, through parents and local business people and, and government, community education and business leaders. And this is the way that young people are going to change uh, the attitudes of our generation um, sometimes to be the enablers, sometimes to get out of the way. And, and for me, it all has to start with education because our young people need to be the Trojan horse for change because we, we're just not capable ourselves to, to bring the change about from within. I, I mean, I'm, I hope we can see that change in old generations because they control so much wealth and the urgency is uh, so necessary. But what you're explaining echoes Mondragon's experience, like they started with education and self-employment through enterprise. And, you know, it's a, it's a proven pathway. So, you know, that we could spend a bit of time here. So what is the pushback from wanting to give our children, you know, the opportunity, the appreciation of place, these education models that are more dynamic, uh, what's been the resistance? Or are you saying that it's actually not that much resistance, it's just bureaucracy? Yeah. Uh, it's really interesting because, the, you know, out of, out of all the, um, and this might be a little bit contentious, but out of all of the state government departments that we deal with on a, on a regular basis, um, you know, throughout, throughout the work we do across communities in Victoria particularly, uh, the education system is the only one, you know, the education department is the only one that really stonewalls these kind of approaches. So, so the, one, the one sort of vehicle for change that you would think would be most receptive seems to be the least receptive. And I don't know, I, I don't know what cultural things have gone on within the education department over the last 40 or 50 years for that to be the case. But it but really is a serious impediment to um, to to the change that we seek. We've also we've also got a scenario where most of the principals, most of the leadership uh, in schools are you know fifty plus, 
and and they're, they, they're ill-equipped. They never grew up with enterprise capabilities as part of their training or their educational uh, journey at, at any point in time. And so, uh, you know, they're not in a great position to lead this stuff. So I think it's easier to avoid it as well because if I can just hold on a little bit and not have to deal with it really, then I'm, I'm pretty close to retirement and, and that will kind of suit me. Um, so there is a, there is a generational uh, push and pull. So, so we're finding it is the young educators, the more progressive educators who are seeking out our organisation. And, and COVID has actually probably brought our business model forward by about five years because educators know, um, you know, they read the reports too, you know, Deloitte Access Economics says that um, 63% of all jobs will require enterprise capabilities by 2030. Yet none of this is embedded in our uh, educational training system. And I, I mean, this is quite trite, so forgive me, but I guess the education system was set up to create well-mannered employees, not uh, enterprising individuals. And even, uh, I would pull up there, the enterprising individuals or the hero myth is sort of a, a unicorn myth that comes out of West Coast of USA. When you get into enterprise, it's actually all about cooperation and teamwork and having to rely and depend on people and things. So, you know, it just seems that maybe the education model for employees isn't suited for the education model for enterprises, full stop. Uh, I, th I think that's a really good point you make. So, so we, we often talk, you know, people ask us, what do you do in education? And we say, well, you know, um, our education system has successfully prepared all of our young people up until recently to, to be the, the best job seekers they can be. And that's great when there was jobs. Uh, it, it, was, it was, you know, there was no lie there. But, but now um, they're still taking the same approach, but for jobs that don't exist. And, and in Australia right now, even if you've got tertiary qualifications, it takes 2.7 years for you to find a job related to what you studied. Now, if that's not a con in terms of you know, a mismatch between what education is providing you and, and what you sign up for when you're six years old, I don't know what is, but I think there's a very strong correlation between um, you know, student disengagement and, and the reality of, of what um, you know, young people uh, know is the truth. And so really what we need to be doing is focusing on those job creator skills so that a young person can forge their own future and be self-determining in that way. I think that we could continue with education. It's obviously fertile ground. Uh, but I want to move to a, a, a bit of the messy middle using the kind of models. I've seen the Preston model and the ABCD model and, and there are models... Um, that help understand and contextualize community wealth building. And I think you mentioned something like 16 factors or interrelating um, uh, factors. I'm repeating myself, but you know, maybe you could share with us the, the model or the thinking that has gone into those 16 factors and, and help us to understand better your, your worldview there. Yeah, so, so since 2013, um, the, the, you know, we've studied um, around 100 uh, of those rural communities um, 
in Australia, but in particular also Canada and Scotland, you know, the remote kind of geographic areas. And, and we've, we've looked at all of those communities that are on their knees and are now thriving again. And, and what's really clear is that they, they've, they've built economic capital again, so jobs. Yep. They've built social capital, so they know how to kind of, um, you know, work with each other and have safe places to meet and, and you know, connect. Um, but that's, that's not enough to have a thriving community. That's, that's a nice community. That's, that's Canberra, you know. But when, but when you wrap cultural and creative capital around those two other things, that's when you get people who are fiercely proud about where they live. And they're the communities where people, despite there might be a lack of obvious kind of um, infrastructure here, are moving there. And, and so we wanted to know what are the things you're doing and is there any sort of um, common themes here um, that you're doing that others aren't? And, and how did you understand this at the start and, and how did you baseline the measures and all that kind of stuff? And they all said, we wish we had have done that. We wish, you know, we just, we just started riffing. We just started doing stuff and then all of a sudden it really got its own momentum. But it it's really comes down to these five key domains. One is education and learning. You know, another one is networks and support. Uh, physical and digital infrastructure is really important. Funding and capital is super important. And that is what helps create and sustain culture and aspiration. And so within those five domains, there are 16 of those kind of key indicators that really becomes a, a picture, a puzzle, if you like, that a, that a community can engage with. I, I find that when, you know, someone gets too wedded to a particular model, there's some people who don't understand the model's just a framework or a lens, and, and so they pick it apart, and all of a sudden you get division. And, and all of a sudden the gold in, the, in, in that model gets diluted, you know. And so what we've tried to do is say, okay, this is, these are the common threads here. These are the pieces of the puzzle. If interconnected and placed alongside each other, actually will help you become agile, resilient, enterprising, inclusive. And don't believe us. We can point you to these people and go and talk to them. Um, and we, we have no investment in you going on this journey. This is your community. But if you like, what we've found is that if you're a local creative, if you're a government worker, if you're a school teacher, if you're environmentalist, if you're a mum or a dad or a council worker, it doesn't matter, you can see part of what you do in this puzzle and you can see a meaningful way that you're contributing to this bigger picture. And I think that's what's most important and that's what's missing. You know, we've divided up our society. I know it's only the business people we're talking to now because they're the only ones that really have the answer. You know, that's just bunkum, you know. Um, and this is a lovely way to actually bring your different capitals and the people who represent that capital into the room. I, I agree. It sounds amazing. And I love the fact that you've got some data behind uh, what makes successful communities. It brings to mind a, a colleague of ours, uh, Cam Neal, talked to me about startup survivor bias. Have you heard of this? No, but I'm keen to hear. Um, so it comes back to the engineers who are working on the planes that were in the uh, Battle of Britain going over to Germany, and they, um, uh, you know, lost half, half of their uh, fleet every time they sent a a bunch of planes over. 
And when the, they landed these planes, the engineers would go and tape up the bits that were shot through and they made them stronger and stronger so they didn't get shot through. And it took somebody to realize that, hang on, these are the areas of the plane you can get shot in and still make a safe landing. We should be looking for the bits that if you do get shot, you're not coming back and we're not going to be able to engineer what, 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 and fix it through post-analysis. So it occurs to me that the same ideas that, or the same themes which unite successful turnaround stories for regional communities might also tell you through survivor bias, what's taking out the ones that don't have those five capitals and you know, we might be able to avoid a few planes going down across the channel, so to speak. Um, so the, the messy middle question there, I guess, is what are the sorts of policies if you were, a, and we have a lot of people who are in councils or economic development agencies who watch this, what are the sort of policy settings that you recommend or, or think can lead to better outcomes or avoid those worse outcomes? What, what have been the critical policy settings from your experience? Yeah, so, so po policies are, is a hard one, but I think the policy that sort of uh, values um, the different sectors of your community is, is the best first place to start. And then the second layer is valuing what the community values. So if I, if, I take, if I take what I would call a sophisticated ecosystem in Scotland, um, that they've done this through this idea of a community right to buy. So they've got to the point within all of their communities where they've asked their citizens, what are those crucial pieces of infrastructure or, or, or cultural elements to your community that you value? Okay, if they're the things you value, why don't we put a policy and some legislation in place that says, okay, if someone wants to sell it, whether it's a government or a private private person wants to sell any of these things that sit on this kind of valued local register, then the community can enact a, a moratorium on its sale and, and that gives it 12 months to get, get its uh, act together to potentially buy that on the open market. So, so you've given a mechanism for the community to feel quite empowered by, by um, you know, and the trust that then that creates and the, the lack of, um, you know, distrust that it avoids is really, really powerful because we all know that when we're dealing with government bodies, um, we always ask the question, why are they consulting with us? Because we probably think that the deal's already been done. And if you've been on the, and the, on the receiving end of these as a, as, a, you know, as a community member for many, many years, you, you, you know, these are the sorts of things that, that creates distance and mistrust. Um, and I think these things are really important. There are other things around access to capital that I think can be embedded in policy, and that is that, okay, well, if your community can demonstrate a willingness to put money in their own pocket to, to make this happen... That is by far the most powerful uh, indicator of community buy-in through dollars. And if they're prepared to do that, then they get the right to, to, to um, go to the next stage in, in how we actually work alongside this group. The other policy I think is phenomenal um, from a Scottish perspective is this idea that 
in terms of economic and, and social and environmental development, they have they have like case managers in the in the uh, highlands and islands of Scotland, and it doesn't matter what idea you take them, they will work with your idea. And even if they think it's a rubbish idea, they'll still give you you know um, you know a thousand pounds to go away and, and build a business case or you know go away and, and set up some meetings to find out whether there's actually a real thing here. They don't actually tell tell you you're a loser or you're a winner. It is all about capability building. And so what they're doing in, in, in taking that approach is that they're not picking winners, but they're building capability and capacity in their entire community. And so what, what they know is that they don't have to do things to or for communities anymore. All they've got to make is communities accountable for the things they say they care about. And so in doing so, um, you know, and, and, and I'll, and I'll you know, use... Um, Oban, you know, on the southwest coast of um, Scotland, you know, the biggest social entrepreneur in the west of Scotland is a guy who's actually the furniture salesman, you know, and he was the one who led led the buyback of a of a of a uh, undercover multi-purpose community hub that is, you know, one of the most successful um, social enterprises in West Scotland. But he was the one that saw the issues that people on the street had through coming in and buying furniture or selling furniture, like. Go figure. No one's looking for a furniture salesperson to be your big social entrepreneur, you know? <laughs> Sit right down and let's have a chat. I've got a deal for you. Um, <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, look, Nat, this is fascinating. I guess it comes to me that I need to pick your brain. What are the, if you could limit it to three kind of recommendations or, you know, top priorities, top tips if you want. Uh, that would help us live a future, uh, you know, that's more utopian than dystopian. Can you can you give us your top three, please? Yeah, yeah, and it and it's through the lens of of uh, you know social entrepreneurship, not not your unicorn winner take all entrepreneurship. So keeping that in mind, the three things are build enterprise capability in the next generation. Two two is develop current and emerging leadership and talent so that those young people have role models to aspire to be like. And the third one is build out a whole ecosystem. And I know that's a, you know, one of those words, but build out, a, you know, a whole ecosystem that, that focus on is on local entrepreneurship and culture. Matt, that is awesome. I'm going to ask Gareth to come back up. I'm going to make the assumption that Gareth is going to ask you, can you repeat the five capitals again for us so that we can get those areas? Educate, education and learning, uh, physical and digital infrastructure. I've got, hang on, let me just see where we got. Uh, education and learning, networks, physical and digital infrastructure, capital and investment. Okay, so funding and capital. And I've just lost my board as well. That's no good. Funding and capital, yeah. Networks and support. And culture and aspiration. Ah, uh, so most of them except for that last one. Hang on. Iron kelp. <laughs> <laughs> and while we're here. Gareth, can you oh. bring the screen up? So, Sorry, 
It's all right. Yeah, there we go. I was busy typing and didn't see put in chat. Hang on, where are we? All right. There we are. And I also missed, I couldn't type fast enough, so I've missed the middle one of the three. Uh, so we have yeah, enterprise so and capability in the next generation. Build a whole Develop current and emerging local leadership and talent. If we could do for entrepreneurship what we currently do for community sport, we would be world beaters. Fantastic. Okay. Um, so I think we started off the Department of Education. So I just wanted to just clarify. So if I understood it right correctly, um, the VCAA has been quite good at engaging, but at the department level, there's this kind of a bit of a, a bit of a blocker, I think. Yeah. Um, a bit of resistance. Bit of resistance. Um, and you know that this is this is in contrast to this idea of 63% of all jobs will need some enterprise capabilities. And we even, we even hear this in the narrative of entrepreneurship and, you know, it's people having to create their own jobs and stuff. So it's this disconnect with what people understand the future to be and current is, is really interesting. And, and as you say, this, you know, yes, great. If you're a job seeker. And, um, you know, that was, that's the traditional model that you would go into to these large businesses. And I think, you know, um, as well, there are more and more jobs that are kind of fungible and can be anywhere. Mm. You know, so, so, you know, if you're a computer program, you can be anywhere. So, which is both an advantage, but also a disadvantage in terms of, you know, natural protections are not necessarily there anymore. Even more so now after COVID and learning that we can all work far away from each other. Again, I think I missed one of these, but we talked about, I left all the different capitals. So we had economic capital, social capital, cultural capital, and creative capital. And so we can't just focus on the first two. It's being able to get to that last one. I've got to turn my camera off because part of the benefit of being downside of being at home is you've got to let the dog out occasionally. Um, uh, uh, and I think you know that that idea of when you move beyond the, the, the sort of the first two and you add in the next two, that's where you get people who are proud of where they live and actually really want to work together and do things together. And we had the five things uh, that we've already sort of talked about a little bit, and I think the community right to buy is is really interesting. Again, you know, we're doing a bit of separate research around Scotland. There's a whole bunch of things that I think we could really. Um, you know, leverage there, you know, looking at, um, I'm going to make a plug for, for Wales here as well with my Why Welsh Heritage, you know, that the idea, because apparently some of the, the renewable stuff idea was originally inspired by Wales sort of saying that they wanted to have targets around uh, levels of community ownership of certain things in particular around renewables. Um, and I've, I've put in a and some whiskey there as well. So, um, well, there were pies in Beechworth, it felt any fair. I get um, it. And, and um, uh, you know, and, and this, this, this idea, he, this, I think, is a key thing, you know, that, that these create the conditions for the community to develop capability and capacity, but it's, it's the other side of that is holding them account. You know, you're accountable for those things 
so there's 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 a there's a, a nice meeting of conditions, but also then you know people, yeah, really being able to put their dollars and their effort where their heart was. Um, and those are the top three things. So building capability, uh, developing current emerging local leadership and the ecosystem. And, and just as a sort of slight side note, coming back to the education in a um, separate thing that I do, I was talking to someone from Finland who, who was talking about they have, um, they're teaching their kids in primary schools co-creation. So sort of entrepreneurs come in and will help and will um, work with them to kind of create new products and services for them. But there's a lot of, they have a lot of agency, of equal agency into sort of saying what they want. And the way this was described as is actually a 20 year experiment in democracy. And I think, you know, I'm seeing echoes of that kind of thinking, you know, here that, you know, we start, you know, the, the need to teach from that very young age is actually not just about employment and jobs, it's about agency and, um, you know, much with that accountability, you know, real local agency and, and democratic um, accountability as well. Yeah, and I think just on that point, there's huge um, uh, mental health implications for giving young people the ability to contribute to their community at an early age. Mm. We know the biggest antidote, uh, antidote to our mental, mental health issues and, and youth suicide is that people feel a sense of connection and belonging to their community. And, and what better way to do it than be, be the actual the agents of the change that they seek as de deliberate and, and active contributors to that. Um, and, and sometimes those benefits aren't really front and centre or understood well. Um, but they're definitely there. Yeah, and again, looking back to uh, you know, when I was growing up in South, Old South Wales, you know, that was when the mines were being closed during the Thatcher years, and, and it destroyed communities. It tore them apart, and that legacy, because they've never, you know, a lot of those have never recovered, is still, you know, youth, um, youth suicides and things are still, many, many years later, are still higher, disproportionately higher than the rest of the country. You know, despite lots of investment and things, mm. so mm. I think the 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 upside and the downside are very in stark contrast there. Matt, that was awesome. Um, do you think you could scroll out? Just thanks, Gareth. That's what I wanted to see the the whole of the picture. Matt, is there anything there that you think needs to be included that we may have missed? You know, either. Look, I, I think. I think there's some sort of evidence that that exists that kind of talks to what we what's really happening here, and and that's you know um, Michael Schumann, who's you know the community economist, who, who I'm sure you're familiar with. You know, he he indicates that 90% of all new jobs uh, created in the US in the last 10 years um, were created by local businesses. And at the same time, the multinationals are, you know, shedding staff. And the multinationals are using technology and automation and, um, you know, other, other instruments, uh, technological instruments to, to actually reduce their workforce. And, and so if we don't focus on local communities and those people who are going to create those jobs of the future, um, I, I can't see that we're going to seriously... Um, provide for for uh, our populations in the future. 
think you're spot on. I mean, where does that natural, where does that lead you to? Does do we reorder under a, a universal basic income or basic services? And what happens to community wealth building then if everybody's got a stipend from the government, not enough to thrive on, but not enough to die on either, you know? I don't know if I've got a clear answer on that one, but but all, all I do know is, is that when local communities um, have have the mindset, skills and behaviours to do things themselves, um, they'll go and do it and they'll, they'll include the people who are, are their fellow citizens. And I think if every community has that ability, then, you know, the, the world's going in a very, very different direction to the way it seems to be, to be going right now. Um, and... Uh, together with the faith that I have in the next generation. So just, sorry, I was ask a question because with this, um, there seems to be this sort of disconnect almost, I was wanting to dig into, so I realised we're running up against time so quickly, between, you know, there seems to be, and we've heard it from, like we heard it from, um, like last week, you know, this this vibrancy and this agency in communities who you know who want to change and will go out and do all of these wonderful things, and we've seen it. But then at this, and I think you know, we've talked about this a bit, a little bit, but this this sort of big policy level, there's this disconnect between the reliance on big business. Where what's going to change? Just so thinking about the kind of models we're seeing in Scotland and things, what's going to change that dynamic? That's a great question, and I and I I think the answer for Australia is um, it's it's resourcing uh, what I would call trusted intermediaries, and these are organisations that are already have deeply embedded relationships with communities, who who are enabled by government but not controlled by government, to to actually work alongside communities on the things that they initiate, um, you know, and and work with them. So things that are initiated by them and then you work with them. The current, the current way that we do business is the government does things to and for communities. And I think there's a fundamental uh, philosophical shift that has to happen and the way that it's practically manifested is through this idea of intermediaries being enabled. That's exactly what the social enterprise sector in Scotland did in 2012 when it gave the first... Um, sector capacity and skills contract nationally to a, to a consortia of social enterprises. And um, that is when it all exploded because this consortia was already embedded in the social enterprise sector. It already had trusted relationships. And so the activity just spread like wildfire. And, and, and people trusted government um, way more as a result of that contract because uh, basically, um, government were admitting that they don't get delivery right most of the time. And, and so, kind of corollary to that, you know, political, um, you know, from a political party perspective, you know, what tips them into towards enabling this? I think there's just got to be a bit of a, a leap of faith and some trust. You know, if I think about, you know, I'm, I'm in a bushfire-affected community um, and, you know, what, what's happened with government is the government 
uh, funds government. They'll put bushfire recovery, you know, additional workers in the local government. They'll create state government departments. Uh, and so what, in effect, that does is it actually, uh, even though it's well-meaning, it's, it's actually getting you further away from uh, where the needs of the community are because you've just put uh, a whole heap of other players in place. Um, and, you know, and, and so community is less trusting and, 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 and less able and, and willing and energised to be part of those processes. Cool. Great. Thank you. Gareth, Matt, what an excellent session. I really enjoyed that and I suspect we could do that uh, and, and bounce back and forward for many hours if we were allowed. But Matt, I'm going to, um, Gareth, do you mind to stop sharing? I'm going to say thank you so much for your time and your pearls of wisdom and um, wish you all the best with um, both the Social Enterprise Academy and ACRE. I think two amazing organisations and it was our pleasure to have you and thank you for spending this hour with us. Uh, thanks so much for the opportunity. It's, um, uh, it's quite cathartic too. <laughs> well, it, it's one of those things, I love how you can feel re-energised after <laughs> story. But you know that's the extroverts amongst us, the introverts are like, melted at the end of an hour but yeah i appreciate your time thanks man <laughs> uh, thanks, thank you, you that was great good on you bye bye